We're getting into Romans chapter 15 this morning. I invite you to open your Bible there. You couldn't tell from the Bible reading as it appeared on the screen as we read together this morning, but as you look at, at your own uh, copy of the Bible, it might show verse 7 as belonging to the paragraph we are looking at this morning. And so I just want to let you know up front, we are not going to get quite that far. And that, that's an editorial uh, thing that the, uh, the Bible translators have done. The, and, and verse 7 is transitional, but I think it belongs more closely with verse 8 and the, the next paragraph. So that, I just want to give you that heads up why we're going to stop with verse 6. A choir member cringed as he heard wrong notes coming from a row behind him. Now, don't try to remember who was in the back row, because this is not something that happened here. I I wouldn't use a story that incriminated uh, and exposed uh, somebody here. But it was a new tenor uh, in the back row. It was clear that he had a good voice, but it was also clear he didn't read music so well. The uh, frequent miscues made rehearsals uh, miserable for this uh, one particular man uh, seemed to bother him more than others sitting in the front. By Sunday morning, most of the uh, mistakes were cleaned up, but every once in a while, a clunker would... uh, did I just say clinker or clunker? I think I just combined those two. I wasn't planning on doing that, but I, looking back, that was pretty well done. Um, I made a, just covered for one of my own clinkers. During one particularly error-filled rehearsal, the man in the front leaned to the one uh, sitting next to him and said, what do you think of the virtuoso in the back row? Uh, The two of them kind of chuckled. Now, the man in the back couldn't hear what they were saying, but he really got suspicious. Were they laughing at him? He was aware that uh, he wasn't always on target. Well, that episode reflects a characteristic of fallen humanity that is not limited to music ministry. This infiltrates our relationships with people in every area of ministry that we encounter as a church family together. We all get annoyed when the weaknesses of others cause them to fall short of our expectations, where we think they ought to be. Internally, we criticize, disdain, sometimes even resort to gossip. Or we just try to avoid people that don't do things the way we think they should. 
Now, that last alternative might not seem so bad. Ah, Just stay away from that person. But in a church setting, if those people who are, are, who, who are strong, to use terminology that's going to show up in our passage today, simply ignore or avoid those that are weak in an area, well, that just leaves the weak to struggle along on their own. And they might sense that. And they can feel unimportant, they can feel inferior, or worst of all, they can feel unwanted. That's been a particular concern that Paul has addressed back starting at the beginning of Romans 14. And in a way, I, I already suggested, I don't think the paragraph divisions here are quite right, but also the chapter division, because this is not a whole new topic in chapter 15. There's a carryover uh, into chapter uh, from 14 to 15 that's going to go all the way through verse 13. The carryover here is clear. But there's also an advance in what Paul is describing. So we get into the text, we're going to be hit right away in verse 1 with the weak, strong terminology once again that showed up back in chapter 14. Actually, for the first time, the word strong occurs. That didn't show up in chapter 14. We just inferred it from chapter 14. We've got the weak, and then we got the others. Well, we were expecting that he meant the strong. Well, here he names them, the strong. But the word he uses to express that simply means the ones who are able. And then he refers to the weak in verse 1. And we're familiar with that, except here he uses a new word. It means, it's actually just the opposite of the strong. This means the ones who are not able. Different category then, at least a variation from that category we saw in chapter 14. There are some other differences uh, that we're going to see in this chapter. Uh, Besides the new terminology... Rather than just accept one another as we are, which was the admonition at the beginning of chapter 14, here we're going to see a clear admonition to do something about these differences, to minister the strong to the weak in order that the weak don't stay where they are. Well, that's a dramatic shift here in emphasis. Uh, And... uh, Notably, there's no corresponding admonition like we saw in chapter 14 for the weak. There's nothing for them to do in chapter 15 if we carry over in its entirety the, uh, the, the uh, weak and strong distinction from chapter 14. Furthermore, after verse 1, the strong and the weak terminology never show up again. 
There are other indications that after verse 1, that's actually, Paul has put that aside. Now we get admonitions that actually apply to both groups, to everybody at the very same time. We all have some changes to make, but not based on two separate categories of people. Now, just because we are people. So here's what I want to suggest, and I'm taking a little preparation time here before we get into the text, because I want to suggest we look at the weak, strong distinctions here a little differently than we did in chapter 14. I think there's biblical evidence that we're supposed to do this, the evidence I've just uh, uh, pointed to. That all of these uh, things taken together indicates that this is new territory that Paul is entering. Some familiarity, yes. But rather than two distinct classes of people, we instead have two categories of characteristics that everybody shares. That is, everybody has their own strengths. So when he says the strong... He is here referring to people who have a strength in a particular area of life or ministry. But at the same time, we all also have our weaknesses. We don't tend to be so good at identifying them, but they're there, and we would all admit it. Yes, I I would have weaknesses as we... uh, Acknowledge then strengths and weaknesses, every individual. Then if you have a strength in a particular area, then you need to take it seriously, the admonitions here. And you do have strengths in some areas. So let's examine this passage from that perspective. Rather than the uh, criticism and disdain and avoiding that comes naturally for us, for those that uh, they don't really get it, uh, Romans 15, our paragraph today, makes it clear that that response is not acceptable to the Lord. The Lord cares for weak people. The Lord cares for you. The song we just heard reflects the reality that Christ is strong in every area. And that's why it means so much to us that he cares for us. Because we acknowledge our weaknesses. He's the one that can help. The Lord cares for weak people. And that means those very same people you have to care about. And care enough about them, according to this passage, to strive to help them grow. Verse 1. You must assist God's people. There's a duty here. He says, we who are strong, and again, I'm suggesting That's you. You've got strengths. 
areas where you can, uh, where you actually are pretty good at this, you've made some progress <clears throat> by God's grace. Well, we who are strong have an obligation. Where'd that obligation come from? Well, it comes directly from the Lord himself. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Or we could translate that, the weaknesses of the ones who are not able. So it's not people that are just being lazy. They could do better, but they don't want to. They're not able as they currently exist. But they have potential. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The, the negative exhortation here, the prohibition, is what comes naturally. I want to please myself. And sadly, it often pleases us to criticize others who aren't measuring up. No more of that, the Lord says. Instead, to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, it's important that we recognize the word bear here doesn't mean tolerate them, put up with them. It means help them carry their load. It's the same word we find in Galatians 6.2 that admonishes that we uh, bear, that we share the load, bear the load, same word, of other people. That is, you see somebody struggling with a load and it's more than they can handle, you help them with that load. That passage goes on to say, and everybody's got their own load that they can handle. Don't expect people to take over your responsibilities that God equipped you for. But you see somebody struggling and they just can't do it, you help bear that. So, help to carry back in verse 1 of Romans 15, we have an obligation to help carry the weaknesses. Carry them, not to prolong them, but to carry them in the sense of understanding them, helping them along, and helping to strengthen them so that they can carry that load. Use the strength you have. And after all, where did that come from? If you can identify a strength in your life, no cause for pride. That's a cause for gratitude. Because God gave you that strength. Why did he do that? Why would he give you a strength in an area that somebody else has a weakness? You don't have to puzzle about that. It's so that you would use that strength to strengthen that weakness that somebody else has. Use that strength. God expects you to help. And in so doing, yes, that also means you have to deny yourself and not to please yourself, to use Paul's terminology. We would take all of our time and all of our energy to please ourselves if we could get away with it. And in the world, 
people do get away with it. Not in the church. God's given you a higher opportunity, a greater obligation. And that requires you to be a servant of God. As a servant, you have no right to please yourself. You have to please the Lord. What pleases the Lord in verse 1 is that you help carry the weaknesses of others. What a contrast to what comes naturally to us. Do your duty, verse 1 says. He says that in a little, a little different way in verse 2, help your brother. But we have to take, take careful note of the terminology Paul uses here. He says, let each of us. Now, it's entirely possible, and many uh, commentators think that it's likely that when Paul says, let each of us, he still means just the strong. And most of those commentators have in mind this one exclusive group of people. Again, I think he's talking about everybody who has any strength, and that's all God's people, have the capacity to minister in some way to others. So when he says, let each of us, at this point already, I think Paul is dispensing with any distinctions here of categories of people. And he's saying what he says from this point through the rest of the uh, paragraph, he's saying we all have to participate in this. Let each of us please his neighbor. Oh, there's another contrast. Stop pleasing yourself and instead please your neighbor. Well, even the word neighbor here tells us that Paul has let go of this weak strong. He's not saying in verse 2, for all us strong ones, we have to uh, please the weak ones. No, he's saying not just the weak. The neighbor is anybody nearby. You can be sure whoever's nearby you They've got some weaknesses. There are some needs there. Furthermore, the word neighbor solicits from us the recollection, oh yes, we've heard this already in Romans, we are to love our neighbor. Love the ones nearby. It means not just the ones you're sitting next to now. That's probably somebody in your family. Love them too. Love them first, but it's the ones that are nearby where you live, where you work, where you associate, people that you have contact with. To love them means to strive to meet their needs. Discern the need, meet the need. And that's what Paul means by please them. Doesn't mean make that other person happy. Help them have a good day. Okay, you can do that in a variety of ways that fall far short of helping that person grow. So Paul identifies the two ways to do this. You do that first 
for his good. What you do to please him is for his good, not just his pleasure, not to make him happy, but for what would be good for him. What would make him better? What would benefit that individual? And then he can say it in a little different way to build him up. There's room to grow. And God has equipped you to help him do it. Further, God has assigned you that obligation. Help her brother. Strive for his benefit. Strive to edify him. He doesn't have to, and he shouldn't have to, stay weak in that area because you can help. You can do something about that. Early in my uh, preaching ministry, I, a, a woman came up to me. Actually, it wasn't after a service. She came up to me on another occasion and said, "Yeah, you, you've got some uh, a, a few idiosyncrasies when you preach. That'd really be good if you'd work on those." I'm sure I do. Well, what are they? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd, I'd really like to be better. Could, and I saw it. I, I was pleading, please help me out. And, no, no, you can figure it out on your own. All right, that was like 30 years ago. <laughs> Probably still doing it. Still have no clue. Uh, maybe you do. Maybe you could help me out, but, and I still invited. It's still not too late, okay? I don't know how much more opportunities I have, but I can still grow. Now, it might not be a good idea for 50 people to have 50 different things to tell me all at once. So if, if you sense that, the, yeah, all right, number of people having ideas here, try to organize it in maybe one a month or so, <laughs> Let's space those out. Um, not sure I can handle uh, being bombarded. But, you know, there are things that we do, things that we observe. Uh, this is the part we're aware of. We observe in others. Ah, that's not good. And, oh, that bothers me how that person does that. You know, there's another way to interpret that bother. It might be God giving you a sensitivity to an area of weakness in that person's life. A weakness that might actually be limiting them in a ministry capacity. And that he has given you the discernment to see it may also be an indication that he has given you the strength to help it. Now this takes tact. This you have to approach carefully. But you might see a mother struggling with a fussy child. The the mother might be exasperated. Mother might be really eager for a little peace and quiet. 
And you can not only step in and say, let me care for your child for a while. Let me take, the, let me take your baby for a few hours. Let you get out and do some shopping or whatever you'd like to do. That could be a real help. But maybe also you have some insights. You say, have you tried such and such? Maybe from your experience. That could be a real ministry opportunity that could strengthen somebody who has a weakness. Now let me emphasize again the tactfulness that that would require. Someone else has a, a, dis, a distracting habit in some way. Or maybe an unused skill, an unrefined skill. You can help strengthen that opportunity. That person can use that for the Lord. There are lots of variations on this. But all that says, look for these as needs that you can help rather than failings that you can criticize. What a difference that could make. Now we all have excuses uh, at the ready. I, I, don't, I don't see anything that bothers me. I don't see any weaknesses. Then you're not looking hard enough. I wouldn't know what to do. Well, the Lord does. And he's got some suggestions. Verses 3 and 4, you must pursue God's method in helping the weaknesses of others. At this point, Paul quotes from uh, the Old Testament from the book of Psalms, this is actually something that David said, and Christ, according to Paul, Christ identified with this. This is common experience for God's people, for Christ, in a particularly acute way. He says in verse 3, and he's here pointing to this as an exa- as the example, look at what Christ did. He saw needs, and he was committed to meeting those needs. And to do so was hard. The statement is, for Christ did not please himself. Okay, just the very thing he's expecting of you. Stop pleasing yourself. He took that same uh, course of action, setting the pattern for us. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now in Psalms, this is David speaking to the Lord. The reproaches of those reproaching God, they couldn't reach God to reproach him, so they fell on David instead. You can see Christ fitting that same pattern. The very sufferings on the cross was the reproaches of wicked people. All wicked people fell, uh, were against God, but they fell squarely on Jesus Christ. And he's not complaining about it here. 
He's not feeling sorry for himself. He's simply stating the reality of being a servant of God with strengths that God can use. Strengths that can help the weaknesses of others. In Christ's case, we are the weak, needy ones. We needed a Savior. And he was willing to bear these reproaches in order to accomplish the meeting of that need. Now, he's not expecting you to die to meet the needs of others. Not likely that is going to come up. But to look at that as the extreme example, it is not, he's expecting you to do something far less sacrificial than that. Don't try offering an excuse here. If you have a strength, it's God-given. It's for this purpose. Christ refused to serve himself. He was fully devoted to God's plan every day. And he chose to use his strength to meet our needs. The Lord provides that example. Furthermore, in verse 4, the word of God provides the instruction you need. He's just quoted the Old Testament, and he anticipates some might wonder, why are you going to the Old Testament? I mean, that's so old. Well, Paul has something important to say about the Old Testament and all of God's word, that it maintains its relevance. It's as relevant for God's people today as it was on the day the particular authors wrote it. And all of God's word is like that. He says in verse 4, whatever was written, there aren't any exceptions here. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. You're wondering how to do this? How do I meet the needs of somebody else? It's in the Word. Here's where we find those instructions. And it's the whole Bible. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Why did God go to such lengths? He says that through endurance, that is putting up with the load, the load that God has assigned and equipped you to carry, that you endure that. You stay up under that load. This is what God's assigned to me. I'm not casting it off. By the grace and strength he gives, here I stand. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Rather than, oh, there's no hope. I can't do that. You're asking too much. Not not me. Too hard to think I'm going to help strengthen somebody else. What you need is the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures. Scriptures that this verse assure us were written specifically for us. Now, you might protest at that. Wait a minute. 
I mean, Paul is writing the book of Romans to a particular church family in Rome in the first century. Not writing to us. All right, well, for Paul, that's true. But who's behind Paul? Yeah, well, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that as he is prompting Paul exactly what to write. Here's how far I think this goes. The Holy Spirit knew that on July 30th, at this moment in, of this day, in 2023, in this room, we would be looking at Romans 15, 1 through 6. And he designed it with us in mind. Oh, pastor, come on. Oh, you don't think the Holy Spirit has that capacity? I think he does. I think that's what this verse uh, indicates. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. How urgent is it that you read God's word every day? You need this instruction. You need the endurance You've got challenges in your life, wide-ranging challenges. You need the word to endure. You need the encouragement of the scriptures. That's your only hope. When you fill yourself with God's word, you emerge with hope. By God's grace, I can do this. What an encouragement. Number of months ago, I received an email that was addressed to somebody else. And as I read through the dear so-and-so, as I knew that wasn't me, and I was reading through, and, and, and there, were some, there were some incriminating things here. The, this, this, the, the writer was accusing the recipient of, of some... Uh, uh, some real, uh, some wrong actions and wrong perspectives on an important issue. <laughs> Why am I getting this? Why do I need to know this? And is this some mistake? And then I looked up and saw that, no, I was copied in deliberately on this. And then it, it, it surprised me because I had never had a discussion with the writer of this email about any of the things he was talking about, but he was assuming that I had the same perspective as the person that he wrote it to. And he actually was right about that. He had guessed correctly. And so that's when I realized, well, this is not a mistake, Everything he's saying about this individual, he intended to say about me as well. And I get the message. Now, that was a negative experience. Uh, those were unjust uh, assessments of the other man uh, as, as well as of me. 
God's word is on the positive side. Yes, it's written to a church family in Rome in the first century, but it's also written for us, specifically. Read every passage with the full expectation that the message and the passage you read, say, tomorrow morning, is exactly what you need for instruction, for endurance, and for encouragement in the day that you're going to face tomorrow. And every day can be like that. Now, in one more way, Paul, in approaching now verses 5 and 6, adopts a technique that tells us, yes, he's talking to everybody here. This is not just to one class of people. And that is he switches to the second person plural and starts using the one another. This goes both directions. Again, because everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses, everybody participates in this in God's plan in both directions. You individually and we together as a church family then must fulfill God's purpose. This is a lofty purpose. Paul expresses this in the form of a prayer. May the God of endurance. It's something only God can do that he's describing here. It's a benefit only God can give, but he expresses it as a prayer because it's a prayer that we have to, uh, to, to follow through. We need to pray this to God. How do you get the help you need to do what he expects you to do? You ask for it. Well, here's Paul asking for it in our behalf, expecting us to take this up when we read this. And, oh, Lord, yes, me too. I need your help with this. So seek in verse 5, his grace for a united church family. There's God's purpose for us. Not factions and, and people that can't talk to each other for whatever petty reason. God's plan is a united church family, and we need his help to, to achieve that. Verse 5 says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Why does that sound familiar? That's what we get from the word. Because it's available in the word, Paul also tells us that it even comes further back than that. It comes from the, the very source of endurance and encouragement, God himself. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. That's a great word. Different people producing different strengths together, working together. To live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, measuring up to the standard that Christ himself set, 
May God grant us that grace. Oh, yes, we all need to join in. God, I need that help. I've not been producing that kind of harmony. There have been some that I have been critical of. There are some that I don't care to talk to. That's discord. God, I need to change that. Would you help me to turn discord into harmony? Seek his grace then. God's the source of that grace. Christ is the standard of what it can do. And for what ultimate purpose? That's verse 6. That together, Paul is picturing a church family harmonizing together, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he just landed on the ultimate purpose for mankind, to bring glory to God. What do we have to do to achieve that? Well, our church must adopt the same purpose. When Paul says that we may with one voice, that we may, that the, the idea there is, is, uh, is, is one mind, but it doesn't mean we all have to hold the same opinion. Chapter 14 already told us that we need to accept that we have some difference of opinion among us on various topics, and that's okay in those non-essential areas. One voice here, one mind, doesn't mean the same opinion. It means the same purpose. I just want to bring glory to God. That's what matters. We have to adopt that one purpose as overriding everything else. But further, our church must present the same message together. What's that message? Our God is great. Our God deserves praise. Our God deserves servants who help achieve this unity in a church family. Giving him praise as a united church family. Verse 6 again, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The combination there, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this is why Christ died for you, to enable you to be a part of a vast chorus that lifts their voices to God in harmony and unity giving God the praise that he deserves. The critical choir member could hardly stand hearing the wrong notes behind him. He had started in the wrong path of response. 
But he sensed that the Lord was convicting him of his pride and convicting him of gossip. He asked God for forgiveness. You see, that's where victory has to start. God, I've been responding the wrong way. Would you forgive me? But then he went further. He decided to take a different approach. He invited that man behind him to meet him for lunch one day. He wanted to get to know him better. Where did he come from? What, what, what's his walk with the Lord like right now? And then he said something. I thought this really reflected tactfulness. He said, I wonder if you'd be interested in uh, just going over uh, the, the choir music together for, uh, for a little bit uh, during the week. He said, I think that might be good for both of us. Ah, good for both of us. That was a good way to say it. So it turns out the two men became good friends. And the choir improved. There weren't any more wrong notes on Sunday. They had worked that out. But furthermore, the whole church grew. Now, what if we could multiply that kind of of approach a hundred times, six hundred times? If we all took that approach to people that have a weakness, how much more glory would God receive from us? It's almost unimaginable. But God can imagine it because he is able. And he has made you and can equip you and give you the grace that you are able to do this. I have to urge that you follow the pattern of that choir member. Ask for God's forgiveness. You might even have somebody particularly in mind. Maybe you never voiced it. But you know, you'd be happiest if you didn't have to uh, uh, ever, ever talk to that person again. And you know how to go out a door that eliminates any uh, contact. God will forgive that. God can help you change that. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you that you are able to meet our weaknesses and to strengthen us. So, Father, we come to you today acknowledging we have a weakness in our relationship with some others. Lord, would you, would you help us turn bother into ministry? Our weaknesses, Father, can you turn us into those that exercise our strengths in such a tactful way that others can grow? We see from your word, Father, that's exactly your plan. Would you help us achieve that? that you might receive more glory
from our church family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.